This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 430. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman. And I'm joined today by our president, commander-in-chief, Jacob Paulson of ConcealedCarry.com. Welcome, sir. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for the intro. <laughs> and uh, well, it's been, you know, it's been a few episodes. You, you've had some stuff going on, and we actually have a we have a new guy in the office slash warehouse getting trained up. Uh, so I know you you were busy with that. I think Tuesday when we were recording or thereabouts. And uh, you know, so that's important. You know, more staff in the in the office, more guys answering phone calls and emails. Yeah, yeah. we doubled that staff. Yes, in the last couple of months we have, and indeed. Um, yeah, so guys, you can reach out to us again. <laughs> Support at concealedcarry.com if you have any questions about anything. Uh, you can also contact us about podcast-specific things, podcast at concealedcarry.com. It's been a while since, well, we, we get probably, I don't know, one or two emails a week. Yeah, not a lot. Yeah. But it's been a while since we did like a big Q&A episode session. Yeah, we um, probably do. Yeah. So guys, uh, gals, submit your questions if you have anything. Maybe we've just done such a great job of answering them all. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by ammosupplywarehouse.com. That's the place to find them. Uh, here's what I would suggest. Make sure you are on their email list. I know I am. And already in the last you know couple of weeks, I've gotten several emails from them notifying me that they've got more stock of something, uh, more inventory. Uh, so that is probably the thing to do. As, as everyone knows, particularly 9mm, 223, uh, and a few other calibers are, are a little bit scarce right now. Uh, or if you can find them, they're pretty expensive. Ammo Supply Warehouse has done a really great job of not raising prices dramatically. There's there's some of that that has to happen because when you have, you know, the actual suppliers like Federal announced uh, two, three months ago, a five to eight percent increase. So naturally, there's going to be some increase. Uh, but point is, Ammo Supply Warehouse still has excellent prices when it's available. Again, how do you learn when it's available? Make sure you're on their email list. So head on over to ammosupplywarehouse.com. Do that. And uh, that's where I that's where I like to buy my ammo. So I would hope that you would do the same. Guardian Nation members, of course, save an extra 5%. Even with prices uh, currently and supply and all that, that hasn't changed. So Guardian Nation members still, still save. Also, today's episode is sponsored by Mountain Man Medical. MountainManMedical.com, of course, being the place... And because I think of the topic today, see, Jacob's got one of the, that's the Yellowstone kit he's holding up right there. Uh, the topic today is going to uh, be very relevant to, uh, I mean, this, this, this very thing's going to come up. The idea of having some kind of trauma kit or medical gear with you, particularly when you are spending time outdoors. So Mountain Medical was not just created to be a tactical trauma kit supply company. Uh, hence the name, Mountain Man Medical. Uh, the goal there being that anywhere that you are, any t- any time, any place, particularly if you're outdoors. I just had a friend yesterday, Jacob, wreck his mountain bike and broke some bones. So that stuff gets serious. 
Yeah, yeah. So stuff can get serious right quick. And uh, I'll tell you, back in my when I was doing mountain biking, super hardcore, uh, like two decades ago now, dang near. <laughs> um, I, I wasn't packing a trauma kit with me, man. I didn't have a, I didn't have a tourniquet or anything like that. And you know, a bad break can turn into an also a bad arterial bleed, and other things can happen. Yeah. So oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so we hope you'll shop for your next. Uh, trauma kit or other medical gear we're you know it's all the time we're adding more stuff to the store there so head on over to mountainmanmedical.com and pick up your stuff make sure you are not just prepared defensively but also medically all right today's topic is we're going to talk about defending yourself and your campsite essentially uh, camping hiking and carrying a gun all right so uh, this is Jacob's idea. That's, you know, when, when we bring him around, we bring him around because he has the good ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Didn't mean to laugh out loud. Like so we were, we were talking on Tuesday. We were talking about different episode ideas. And, and this is an idea that Jacob threw out. And I said, well, Jacob, if we can convince you to step away from, you know, other important work for an hour and do an episode on Thursday, let's do that one. <laughs> so here we are. Here we are. So uh, I know you enjoy spending time outdoors. I do as well, including with our families. Uh, you know, and I, you, you and I both actually have uh, served in various capacities, both with church and also with uh, scouting organizations like the Boy Scouts. Uh, so I've I've been been out there. I've I've done you know week long camping trips, hiking, you know, backpacking trips, that sort of stuff. And admittedly, at one time, I was not carrying. Uh, some of the gear that I do now because perspectives change and and you learn things and you also hear of things and you go, hmm, never thought of that before. Maybe I should make sure I'm a little bit better prepared. So we're, we're going to look at this. We're going to approach this from a defensive perspective, of course, but there's also a lot of other practical preparations and other resources and tools we want to perhaps have uh, when we are out and do- enjoying the outdoors. So yeah, that's an important disclaimer that, you know, this is, this episode would be much longer and it'd be a little bit out of our wheelhouse if we spent all the time talking about broad stroke survival kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So we're really trying to stay in the realm of defense. Right. Right. So, um, you know, a lot of, I, we've certainly not tackled this topic head on as a dedicated topic for an episode. Uh, we've probably touched on things here and there, but most of the time we spend our time talking about uh, defending myself in my home, defending myself on my property, in my vehicle, wherever, you know. Uh, but when we apply things to an outdoorsy environment, uh, that context uh, is there's there's some similarities for sure, and there's also some some differences. Um, so I mean I don't know where where do you feel like we should begin on this one? Well, um, I made myself some notes here, so I wouldn't forget anything particularly important. But I think campsite choice is an interesting topic. Mm, uh, like a huge, yeah, there's a huge difference between a situation where I'm going to I mean two things come to my mind. One would be you know, drive versus pack in. And the second would be what I would call kind of a traditional campsite where rangers are probably making the rounds and there's kind of a community, uh, you know, various people and your, you know, your campsites next to another campsite. And, you know, it's a dumpster and a bathroom house building over there. And, you know, so I think that's a, those are, that's a different environment defensively. 
than mm-hmm. kind of more of a dispersed camping kind of scenario where, uh, you know, I'm just driving up in the middle of wherever and it's not illegal. And so I, you know, move some brush and pop down my tent right here. Uh, or maybe on a backpacking trip and I'm just, you know, hike as long as I can and then plop it down. So I think that's mm-hmm. the first thing is is understanding that those are some strategic differences relative to how you have to be defensively prepared. Uh, obviously, yeah. you're, you may not enjoy it as much, but it's probably uh, significantly lower risk when you're at a designated campground. At a designated campground, you're going to have some resources. There might be a ranger station or an office or a building that has a phone or uh, other communication type resources. You might have uh, patrols from uh, from rangers and from other people you know that that might be in charge of that that ground that space. Um, you lower your risk because wild animals are significantly less likely to happen upon a campground because they hear noise and they the smells there and just a variety of things that drive animals away from those kinds of situations. Uh, and you're probably less likely to be the target of some sort of uh, you know human predator. Uh, when there's a lot more people about. So there's a, a strategic decision there relative to, you know, do I want to get up out and in the woods and on my own and have peace and quiet, or do I want to go to a designated campground where my risk is probably yeah. lower? Well, you're basically talking about uh, developed campsites and undeveloped campsites, yeah. right? Because right. that, that includes what you could be in a KOA, for instance, sure. or a uh, U.S. Forest Service managed you know, campground or sure, state park or whatever. Yeah. Or just out in the woods backpacking. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so if we stick kind of with the undeveloped and developed, uh, categories, uh, I, I think cause those, uh, those are a little bit easy. Yeah. That's, that's pretty easy to kind of lump together. Uh, cause I think that your developed campground strategies, uh, TTPs for instance, right. Techniques, tactics, right and best practices, um, and procedures, right? They're going to vary a little bit when we're in a developed campground. Basically what it means is we have other people around us, right? So it's, you're very, it's very much a community campground. And if we're just out backpacking, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a different feel. So yeah, my, for me, the techniques don't change as much as just the level of risk changes. And so I'm going to do probably all the roughly same things. I just have to recognize that my level of risk is higher. Um, mm-hmm. the, the the techniques that might change a little bit, I suppose, are things like communication-related techniques, um, having a sense that if I'm in a, a developed campground that I know that that building over there has a phone uh, or that I can get a hold of a ranger over there on a radio or something. Right. Um, versus yes, Developed campgrounds are typically going to be much managed. better communication. Yeah, right. yeah. So communication is a big technique thing uh, relative to preparedness, but uh, that, that's that's probably the only big technique. Now the other the other one, and this is maybe in the same category, but maybe it's slightly different. And that is what I would call you know, drive-in versus pack-in. Mm-hmm. Um, so drive-in changes things just because my ability to bring gear is much easier. I just throw it in the car. Life is happy. But if I have to pack in things, that changes things. For example, uh, we'll talk about this. I'm sure more late later. But I, I really like to bring a nice little lockbox uh, to keep in the tent at night to put the gun in. But if I have to backpack in and I'm on a five-day backpacking trip, I'm not bringing in a steel lockbox. Uh, you know, like the weight is just a complete deal breaker. So, you know, there, those, there, there are definitely going to be some strategic things that are going to change just purely based on whether or not I'm driving in or I got to pack it in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and that, that's some of the stuff that's important to consider when we're talking about this, uh, particularly developed versus un, undeveloped uh, camping. Um, and, and I'm with you there because a lot of times when I'm camping, I'm camping with, with little children around. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, we go with our family or maybe I'm out with scouts or that sort of thing. Uh, now I'm, I'm going to be careful dancing around the issue of like boy scout trips and carrying a gun. Uh, but uh, uh, my point is, is there's a lot of times that I am uh, camping and I've, I've got to be, con- you know, I still have that same uh, concern, that safety concern about, when my gun is not, because obviously I'm packing a gun, when it's not on my body, secured by my person, then we we have those safety concerns, just like we do anywhere else at home, uh, for instance. Uh, so I I have taken, I mean, I guess what I would say is, you know, we could obviously, we could really, you know, deviate and go into some uh, very detailed stuff on even something as basic as that, as far as stuff that I've done or stuff that you've done, but uh, I think to keep it simple is I would just make sure I'd give that some consideration, right? Because I think that there's a number of possible solutions that a person might go with uh, to managing, you know, the safety of of their of of young ones when uh, they are out uh, camping like that, right? So, uh, for instance, I'm a pretty sound sleeper. Uh, there's been times I have slept extremely soundly even when camping, right? Uh, maybe even sometimes arguably almost more sound. I, sometimes I'm just so relaxed. I, I don't know, being outdoors, you know, I, there's been, there's been nights I've certainly had restless nights on a, on a sleeping pad and a, and a, uh, sleeping bag. Uh, but there's been plenty of times I've like just conked out, you know, all night long. And, and meanwhile, I had to do something with my gun. So either I'm sleeping with my gun or I'm securing it somewhere. So doing that camping and having like a two-year-old in the same tent as me and being just like totally out of it, like that's, I don't think anything would happen. And I generally keep things right close to me anyway. But but there's just that that concern that, oh, my, my two-year-old wakes up and is crawling around and I'm just out of it, you know, and like only takes seconds to get his hand on a, on a gun and, and do something with it. So or just uh, the reality that you're, you yourself are in a different environment and you might wake up and not realize where you are or not understand the sounds that sure. you're hearing. Yeah. And, you know, having, having a gun in a, in a, in a scenario where you can access it and press a trigger relatively quickly without some sort of barrier mm-hmm. uh, is, is increases your risk in an environment where you're not used to sleeping. Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> I think, you know, kids are certainly a, a factor, a consideration, but broadly speaking to me, whether I'm in the campsite or I'm in my own bed at home, uh, having a gun in an unsecured state is never preferable. Uh, and, and we could talk more about that right now. We can get right to that. So uh, the, the best practice here is to bring a lockbox in the tent, take gun off at night, put gun in lockbox, just like you should at home. That is the best practice, regardless if there's kids in the tent or not. Um, obviously, we want to maximize our ability to access that gun quickly in some sort of emergency. So a quick access safe is we got plenty of episodes you know, dedicated to that topic uh, is probably a good idea. But recognizing that that may not be an option if I am on a backpacking trip or I have to pack in my gear, you know, bring in my little gun vault safe is probably not, not going to work out. This is like the situation and in my world, the only situation I can imagine where uh, – firearm disabling 
onboard devices may have credit. So uh, I'm talking about things like the Identilock, you know, fingerprint scan mm-hmm. thing or the Israeli product that's similar that you kind of you know, twist this knob three times, two times, one time, and it pops uh, off the chamber. Starts with a Z. I couldn't tell you. <sighs> I'm um, a blank, but yeah, I know what you mean. What's that one that the company sent us years ago? That's got like a little dial combination, you know, that you can put on your revolver. Oh, and, oh yeah, and I, don't remember, I don't remember what that one's called. Um, Safe T Lock S A F dash T dash Lock. So, so you know, these products that generally I despise uh, because the idea is that I'm putting something on the gun that disables the gun, and I have to get this thing off of the gun or unlock it with the on the gun, those things to me have no place in normal day-to-day use. But this is one of those exceptions where I may not be able to backpack in uh, a steel lock box, but I can bring, you know, the, my Glock with this mag that's got these little buttons on the bottom and something that's going to force a certain degree of cognition to ensure I'm awake and I'm, I have my senses about me. Uh, and it's going to prevent unauthorized access and use, but it's still relatively quick to disable and access the gun, and I'm and I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not bringing in some big heavy safe or something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I I generally agree. I mean, I think it's a bit strong to say that uh, some of those products never have a place outside of this example. But in Jacob's day to day world, they really don't. No, and I'm with you there because I, I I'm I'm the same way. But uh, I I guess it always is a strong word. Um. I'm sure there's other exceptions I, I, like this one, but you know, and I've talked before, I think about how I've used that safety lock product on a, uh, J frame revolver when camping. Uh, and actually that J frame is something that I've carried, uh, rather than say my semi-automatic going with, uh, uh, 357 Magnum load out of that gun, you know, like a hard cast 180 grain bullet, um, Buffalo bore, you know, it's pretty, it's a pretty stout load. Uh, and, and we'll come back to, I think to ammunition selection and choices, uh, some more here in a bit. Cause I think there's some, some good stuff to, to cover there, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of been one of the purposes for me having that, uh, safety lock product still, it's actually still on that revolver and it's kind of been dedicated for that purpose to some degree. Um, I think, that, again, I think there's some other strategies that can be used, but use common sense and be safe in whatever you do. Uh, Jacob gave the best practices answer, um, but that's not always practical, right? I mean, when you're on a long backpacking trip, every ounce matters, right? And if it's just me or it's me and a, uh, other adults, people I know and trust, like for me to just, uh, put away my gun in, in its holster and maybe just tuck it in my backpack or something, you know, that maybe is next to my sleeping bag, that kind of thing. Like I, I, I or even to have it, you know, right there next to me, if it's in the holster, that's the thing. I, you have to realize, I know some people are probably saying like, you guys are crazy. Like I, I might need to grab that thing in the middle of the night and shoot a bear. <laughs> and here's the thing. Anytime you have an, an unsecured gun. And by that, I mean, gun just laying there and trigger exposed. Yeah, it's it's that's that's not a good idea. Uh, you, you, Jake, you bring up a good point. The idea of that we want some measure of cognition to be taking place in the brain uh, before we start handling a firearm. 
Yeah, and we I, I truly that, believe that. By the way, by the way, we staged the gun. Yeah, that we force some degree of cognition. Uh, a now, holster might be is a pretty low barrier of cognition required, but uh, but in a holster in my backpack, you know that's 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 much greater, right? And so yeah, I think we need to but, figure out how we're gonna do that. But again, you know, grab the gun, and if you've got to pull a holster off of it, that's that the point is we we don't want to be reaching for something or reaching for something in the dark, and and you just kind of start grabbing and you snatch the trigger you know, uh, that kind of thing. And so we, 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 we do still want, I think something that, you know, almost like a two-step process. Um, a simple one's great. And yeah, I mean, I, I can relate to, uh, the feeling of wanting to have quick access to something. Uh, I, I wasn't in my tent when it was ravaged, ravaged by a, a presumed grizzly bear, but I did have a tent that was ravaged by one once upon a time, many years ago. Uh, What's that? Were you in Idaho? That was in Idaho. Yep. Just curious. Yep. Not not far from Wyoming, mind uh, you. Just ask him. Not, not far, but it, you know, it was that it was it was grizzly country, man. And uh, uh, somebody I was camping with had some some food stuffs in their bag that uh, attracted that bear. And I tell you that that's the, that was the first lesson that you know as far as just how powerful uh, they can smell uh, because it was stuff that was sealed in packages, but he knew right where to go and what bag to go into and went right into that tent. And that was that coming back. That was a bit of a shock and a wake up call. So along um, along these same lines, uh, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. You had more along Mm -hmm. these same lines. Another thing would be to uh, keep the gun off the the floor of the tent, just due to moisture concerns. Yeah. Uh, If you do any degree of camping, you've definitely been flooded, right? You've definitely had water come in that tent and you probably uh, over time you learn how to prevent those, those things, but Definitely don't want my gun sitting in a puddle uh, in the morning. So, also do you know? Do keep keep the gun off the off the floor. Yeah, uh, you know. I mean, yeah, that's that's good advice. I would say like uh, uh, dew is like a big concern, right? I, you know, I always try to make sure I have things mm-hmm. away from the sides of the, the side walls of the tent, that kind of thing. Um, you know, if my gun gets wet, I don't like cry too much because you know it, it's designed to take some of that as long as i you know do my part and go oh i need to you know maybe do a quick field strip uh make sure i wipe things down get things you know a little bit a a light coat coat of oil oil on things again and and that'd be a a fair thing to kind of maybe sort of i don't know if we necessarily need to segue but just mentioning that uh it's not a bad idea to have at least some minimal firearm care uh products with you if you're backpacking and carrying a gun so having a small you know like I'll, I'll just throw in my bag a small tube of pig lube you know my preferred uh choice of lubrication uh a boar snake which is lightweight and small and easy to pack and honestly i can you know and then if i have maybe a rag or two which might serve other purposes you know in uses in a camp or camping environment um i can pretty much do everything I need to do. Uh, that's real, you know, that's immediately important with a boar snake, a rag and, and some lubrication. So, cause at the very least you can wipe things down and just reapply some lube and uh, you should be good to go again. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, all good thoughts. Um, so I, I do want to, before we move on from the idea of like, uh, you know, developed campsites versus undeveloped, um, undeveloped is really, challenging to i mean it's a lot harder to prepare for right because number one you you never quite know exactly where you're going to be uh if you're on a backpacking trip you might just 
you know, oh, this looks like a good, a good place to stop tonight, right? Um, and so, you know, the the actual setup and the location and those environmental factors and how they might play into any kind of defensive plan, uh, you know, are going to be a little bit of an unknown. Um, and by that, what I'm get kind of alluding to is that even when we're camping or hiking, we can absolutely still be thinking in terms of what can I, you know, what resources do I have available to me to use for defense, right? By that, I'm, I'm, I'm talking cover, right? If you got large boulders or trees or that sort of thing that you can go, ah, that's my go-to place, you know, if, if I need to take cover someplace, uh, that sort of thing. Maybe giving some thought as to where you specifically set up a campsite so that maybe it affords you an opportunity to see other people strangers, whatever coming, right? Some kind of, you know, a little bit of a high, higher ground or a, a place, you know, that's got a little bit of a vantage point. So you don't have somebody stumbling into your campsite with very little uh, warning, right? So giving that kind of thing some thought. Switching over to the developed campsites, uh, you know, again, you kind of have to play by the rules of the, of the campground. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, you, just being aware of who's around you, where other people are camping. Uh, somebody mentioned, I threw up the comment on the screen for those viewing that, uh, Hey, it's a good idea to go introduce yourself to your neighbors. It's not a bad idea at all because you can, you can feel out a lot about other people just by getting to know them, meeting them, saying hello, shaking hands, that sort of thing. And, and that's all relevant to developing a personal defense plan as it relates to that, particular campsite that night, whatever, because you go, Hmm, you know, I might not have the ability to change campsites because I, I, I'm a little bit iffy about this particular individual, but at least knowing that maybe there's somebody else in that campsite that's sharing it with you that you might want to just keep a little extra eye on or give them a little bit extra attention, that sort of thing. Or maybe you set up things a little bit differently. So you, so you, again, you, you just want to be thinking constantly just because we're out camping doesn't mean we let down our guard uh, and don't ha- take any sort of measure or try to develop plans for how we defend ourselves when we're in that environment. Yep. I think it's all valid. Uh, my biggest thing is always, you know, when it, when in this particular topic is communication, I'm always thinking about, mm-hmm. How far am I from cell service? Um, you know, is there a radio repeater up here? You know, I'm, I'm trying to really think because being near, regardless of type of emergency, whether someone's trying to strangle me and choke me out, or I just fell on a branch and broke my leg, like what, you know, communication is going to get really, really critical real fast. And so having some sense for which direction to go and what tool to use, that's going to be very important. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, I, I, let's see. I'm, I'm actually looking at uh, some of our other notes here or things that you jotted down as well, trying to think what's the most logical way of uh, going through this. But, you know, we t- kind of touched on the second thing you had noted here, tent, safe storage at night. So we talked about that, mm-hmm. um, having lock. Uh, this is one thing for sure. I like this. You, you noted here, good access to light. Um, so... And this is true even in my home environment with the way I stage things each evening. Uh, whether And whether I'm using a quick access safe or, or vault or whatever or not, uh, wherever my gun is, there's light. There's a light source very, very close by. Also, here's another consideration to, to maybe have. Uh, I have corrected vision, meaning I, ha- I typically wear contacts, uh, but I don't 
sleep in them. So those have to be removed at some point. I have glasses. So I'm pretty specific when I'm camping, especially because I, I don't ever want to be in that situation where I'm, I'm waking up, it's dark, and I'm trying to figure out something that's going on, and I can't see either because of light or because I don't have my, my vision, uh, my glasses. So, uh, uh, you know, an example that was given, I've, I've certainly, I'm just going to use this as an example uh, since I kind of touched on this a little bit, but I've certainly been like on a backpacking trip where I just took my holstered gun and I tucked it into my bag and then um, placed on top of my bag, my glasses and my flashlight, like right there, right? To where that if I woke up, the first thing I'm grabbing is my glasses and my light, right? Because they're on top. And then I then I can open up the bag and then I can grab the gun if I feel I need it. And it's, it's you know, it's readily available. It just, you know, I'm getting the things kind of ready in the priority that I feel I really should. I need to be able to see... Uh, Need, need need light and uh by that point i'm starting to think and be more aware of what's going on and i'm thinking better and more clearly and now i'm grabbing the gun and removing the holster and putting it to use if i need to mm-hmm. yeah and I, I make sure that everyone in my tent does that so i mean you know, in my case usually my family right so mm-hmm. every every single person goes to bed with a flashlight and they know where that is so they can wake up grab it turn it on and everyone, everyone needs good access to light. Yeah, you're obviously talking about your family. Like you don't force other no, people, right? Necessarily. We're, or is that the rules of your tent? Like if I was to go camping with you, you'd be like, Riley, where's your glasses and your flashlight? I don't, I don't know. I, I might, I might just ask. Like, hey, do you have a flashlight? You know, I treat you like my kids. Like, hey, you should, you should have a flashlight. You know. Yep. yep. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's just a thing. Uh, <laughs> another thing that that. I do pretty consistently. And I wish I could say I'm hundred percent on this, but I certainly have forgotten or messed up on this, but I try to remember to bring a small padlock and I lock the tent from the inside. Uh, Interesting. Tents are easily, you know, you can take a knife and cut through a a tent wall, right? So that's, I'm not suggesting it's some sort of impenetrable barrier, but I think it could be a potential discouragement uh, to someone if they go to grab the zippers and they can't unzip the tent because on the opposite side, the two zippers are locked with a with a lock with a little padlock. Yeah. Okay. I I definitely don't want to be camping with you. Yep. Yep. You wake up in the middle of the night. You need you need to take a whiz. You, you need to you need to just. We usually leave the key in it. Like we just use a little master lock, this little black master lock, but, uh, because because the person can't access the lock unless they're inside the tent. You, well, so th- there's all kinds of like a carabiner could do sure. that. Job. Sure, a carabiner could do the job. Yeah, whatever. Like that, that, and we've done. We've definitely used carabiners. The the point is just simple. A twisty tie. I've used twisty ties too, uh, or zip tie. I suppose I, I don't think I've ever used a zip tie because then I'd have to like have a knife to cut it off. But uh, but, the, but the point is, you know, the simple thing is binding those those zippers together on the inside is a quick discouragement. I'll tell you where I learned this was in uh, was in high school as a on on the track team. Common place was to uh, to take a tent on a track. T- for to attract me and you'd set up a tent uh you know wherever your team was camped out and that you know that's where you take a nap between your events and you'd hang out with your friends and stuff and if you didn't want the other teams players to come and bug you you'd lock your tent every time that's just what was done <laughs> so anyway yeah uh simply binding the zippers together on the, on the inside while it's not going to keep a very determined attacker out um it is it is a, a, creates a certain barricade, right? That someone's got to make a decision. At that point, I can't just unzip this door. I gotta, I gotta slice my way in. 
I have to admit, I've I've never done that. Never even thought about it, honestly. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Cool, cool, cool. Um, Less lethal. That's uh, this is a very valid thing, uh, both for the human and the animal intruder or attacker. Right now, uh, I, I have a couple of cans of bear spray uh, that I carry with me, and, uh, uh, and and growing up in grizzly bear country, I mean that that just was a standard practice uh, carrying bear spray. All right, and bear spray can very much, in fact, is very 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 effective. Uh, in many, many uses of bear spray against bears every year in this country. That said, there are times where bear spray, it doesn't get the job done. And that's why I also carry a gun, right? Uh, but I certainly know plenty of outdoors people that would be like, gun, I don't need no gun. I got bear spray. And you know, they're also maybe even morally opposed to killing animals. Uh, even if the, that animal's trying to eat you. Uh, but, uh, uh, so certainly carry both. So just like I think uh, the point here is it's a valid thing to have less lethal tools in a normal everyday environment, carrying uh, a small thing of OC spray or whatever with you, uh, having that as an option. Options, you know, tool, tools give you options. Having the, having that as an option in a in an EDC environment uh, is is great. And also having it in this camping slash hiking context also makes a lot of sense. And again, for both the human and the animal uh, uh, attacker or intruder or, or threat. Uh, So now in the case of like when I'm camping or hiking, I'm not going to carry typically, I don't think I ever have, well, maybe I have once I'm not going to carry, you know, like more human based OC spray and bear spray. I'll probably just carry the bear spray. Um, and and there's actually a bit of a, mm, a misunder like people misunderstand bear spray and there's actually so people think well bear spray that must be like like pepper spray on steroids right because it's you know <laughs> so much bigger and badder for this big animal and and the reality is is that uh, that I've seen actually numerous bear spray formulations that aren't nearly as potent as the stuff we use for self-defense, right? But what bear spray gives you, uh, there certainly are exceptions, by the way. There's certainly, uh, and I, I'm, I'm at a loss. I can't remember all the different brands of companies that, that offer bear spray. I'm not going to mention anything specific, but do your research and look at the OC content uh, and, and pick the strongest stuff that you can get. But what bear spray definitely gives you is a lot of volume because those distances are typically a lot larger. And that's an advantage as well. And they're designed for for a, a greater reach as well. As, uh, a lot of times the stuff that's carried for personal defense might have a 10 or 15, maybe 21 foot range, the really strong stuff, you know, in a, in a stream. But your bear sprays will oftentimes have a 30 foot or maybe even a little bit more uh, of, a, of a range. So uh, keep that in mind. Understand how those tools work. Uh, again, the actual OC content, uh, higher is better, obviously. And, uh, you know, like we're looking for like a, like a, like a 2% formulation is, is, is pretty potent stuff, believe it or not. And so, uh, a little, a little goes a long ways and and then also be familiar with its use, know how to remove the safety device that's on that, uh, bear spray 
and you know g- maybe give it a, a test try. In fact, you should test it periodically. It's not a bad idea to give a little, you know, and just kind of make sure that it functions. It's still pressurized, and you'll kind of get a sense for how far it'll shoot. And typically, uh, those particularly larger cans, you're going to get dozens of streams that you can fire out of that thing. So you can do a test now and then, and of course, you want to replace those periodically. Yep. Speaking of wild animals, I think uh, this is starting to stray a little bit out of our self-defense you know, conversation, but it is important to just do the best practice stuff to keep the wild animals away from you. And most has to do with food management. So making sure that you know your sleeping quarters are relatively removed from where food was prepared or is, and, and is stored, and then making sure that food is being stored in a way that, to the best of our ability, minimizes issues. So smell is a factor. So as mentioned, you know, just putting something in packaging or putting in a cooler doesn't necessarily keep the bear from sniffing it out. Right. We put it in a bear box that's, that's suspended, that's at least you know six feet off the ground and four feet off away from the from the, the trunk of the tree. Uh, and and also you can just double things up. I've done that many times. I've you know put it in packaging in a cooler and then put the cooler in a vehicle. Um, you know that's that's going to go a lot better than than you know less than that, right? So uh, going mm-hmm. the extra mile to both remove sleeping quarters away from any food preparation area, but then also store food appropriately on, you know, for, per those best practices is a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. And even things as small or simple seeming as brushing your teeth, do that away from where you sleep. Um, Cause that, you know, scent, scent attracts, right? So, <clears throat> and again, I've been surprised by just how, how good of smellers those, those noses have sometimes uh it, we, obviously you and i live in uh a more of the you know bear country i mean bears bears are all over this country black bears sure. of course especially and there's uh, all different sizes and and uh, you know i've certainly seen people that talk about well we got those black bears and they're talking about you know bears that might they're, they're really about the size of a big dog and it's like come out here to come out here to the west We'll show you show you some real bears, and then then the folks in Alaska will be like, "Well, come check out the bears we got." Right? Um, bears are not the only threat. Uh, certainly, there there are other critters and and animals that can be a potential threat. We want to be concerned about obviously things e- even as simple as a snake, uh, poisonous snakes, also uh, uh, mountain lions and, and and bobcats and things like that. I mean, there's uh, been a you know number of there's there's a couple of mountain lion attacks every year. In fact. A couple of years ago, I remember there was a string of attacks in California, Nevada, somewhere, somewhere around that. I think it was week. in the Sierra Nevadas, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know where there was multiple people like just hiking or running or biking on trails that uh, got attacked by mountain lions. Uh, so, point is, is we you know we want to be thinking about all the potential threats. And, and to your point, we didn't want to get too far into the you know survival and like the specifics of how we camp or hike but more just you know trying to stay stay true to the defensive uh, context and, and that that's really what i mean about this is uh we want to you know we want to be we i'm not just concerned about defense from people but from all potential threats um and, and to that point we we've touched a little bit especially as we introduced our medical sponsor uh and we're going to come back and we've got some, some content, some points where we're going to cover a little bit more on, on medical stuff, but uh, it's really, really important that we have. Let's talk real quick about, uh, about laws. This is one that comes up. I mean, one thing would be just talking straight up about where, 
right? Where, where you are, the jurisdiction, I guess that applies, uh, because there's national parks, there's national monuments, there's, uh, other historic places sometimes, although they don't typically have camping. Um, you got U.S. Forest Service land, you got BLM land, you got state parks, right? All kinds of, and in national forests, right? So uh, lots of different places, lots of potential jurisdictional almost type issues. Um, you, you have a, a pretty good handle on on a lot of that. So can you break down for us the kind of the basics of the law? So we're going to lump this into three categories. Category one will be national forests. It's a category unto itself. Category number two is going to be state parks, national parks, national monuments, national memorials. So a state park and then anything else run by the National Park Service in that state. And then category three, we're going to call it just BLM, public land. Okay. Mm-hmm. So those are BLM three categories. So national forests, we're going to start there. Uh, national forests are notoriously great places for recreational shooting. There's no prohibition for possession of a firearm or use of a firearm in a national forest outside of common normal things like, you know, don't shoot when next to the road where people are driving by and things like that. But, but if, you know, if you would presume it to be safe, then it's probably legal in a national forest. So category one, national forest, pretty good to go. Uh, category two, state parks, national parks, national monuments, national memorials. So, these are the same category because in 2011, President Obama signed a law that effectively made firearm regulations in anything run by the National Park Service mirror the regulations of the state parks for this for the state where the national park is located. So in the case of us here in Colorado, we have four national parks. Rocky Mountain National Park is probably the most common and popular of those. So gun possession regulation related stuff. Uh, in a national park in Colorado mirrors the regulations and laws that exist for the state parks in Colorado. And that's true in every state. So the the thing that needs to be researched is what laws or regulations exist relative to firearm use and possession in my state's state parks. And I suppose maybe there's a state out there that doesn't have a state park. I couldn't tell you, but I've always lived in very large Western states that have big state parks. But anyway, so presumably if you could figure out what the regulations are for a state park in your state, then you would, mirror that and match that and and that carries over into anything that run by the national park service, which is different clearly from the national forest service, which was our other category. So for example, here in Colorado, Colorado, then we do allow guns in our state parks. Uh, We allow them for self-defense purposes. And so by extension, then I can also have a firearm for self-defense purposes in a national park monument or memorial. However, the kind of cautionary tale there is to be beware that while they may be allowed for possession, um, most of most of the time they're not allowed for any sort of recreational use, and there's very tight you know, regulations about what you can do with that gun in that place. Also, if you are in a national park monument or memorial, uh, you need to be reminded that all federal buildings are off limits to firearms. Mm-hmm. So while I might be able to have, you know, if I'm camping in Yellowstone. God's gift to the United States, mm-hmm. then I should bear in mind that, you know, I can't visit any visitor center. I can't go into any of the lodges or, you know, visitor centers or bathrooms or latrines with a gun. And arguably, and this is semi, I'd call it debatable gray area, but arguably you probably can't have a gun in the parking lot of any of those buildings either. And so you got to be pretty cautious if you really want to obey the letter of the law when you're in a national park monument mm-hmm. or memorial. That's not how I've read it with regards to, say, like the parking lots. 
uh, versus the building. So we, we have a we have a court precedent here from Colorado. So in our federal district court, where mm-hmm. someone was arrested for having possession of a firearm in a parking lot of a post office, that went to uh, an appellate court. It went all the way to a federal district appellate court, and that was sustained. So that would suggest that um, the parking lot of that federal building is off limits. But like I said, that's one court. Right for a very specific that covers yeah. a very specific area. I'm not. I'm not sure on that. With I mean, the post office is almost its own thing though, too, because it's sure, but it's quasi- not listed. It's not listed independently in the law. It simply says federal buildings, buildings that are owned by the federal government or which federal employees operate full time. So, again, if you like what I said, if you want to mm. be very overly cautiously following the letter of the law, mm. I think that you should probably be aware that parking lots could be dicey, mm. uh, but. No. Well, what this tells me is I'm going to go read that some more. But uh, sure. what I've noticed pretty consistently is that uh, the, the National Park Service has done a really good job of labeling the buildings. Yes. Uh, so really that as job. you're approaching the entrance, uh, you'll typically see, you know, no guns signs. Um, kind of the classic, you know, uh, you know, slash to the gun, whatever, with a circle. Um and Some so these uh, buildings are, are run and maintained by third party contractors mm-hmm. like Santerra is probably one of the bigger, bigger mm-hmm. ones. And so often they're the ones who are um, you know, left in charge of making sure that the signage is there. Santerra has their own uh, signs and language that they use on all those buildings. But yeah, that's that. It, there's definitely very little debate, if any, about whether or not you can have a gun in a federal building. The parking lot, like mm-hmm. I said, we could argue that that's that's arguably a little bit of a gray area. Uh, but if you really wanted to follow the letter of the law, I'd say that you should be aware that it's potentially a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those those are your major legal issues in your state parks, national parks, monuments, memorials. And these are specific and very a little bit by state to some degree. Mm-hmm. Our third category, well, I'll just call public land, BLM stuff. So here in Colorado, that could be all sorts of things. That's un- unincorporated county property. Um, it could be a lot, you know, whatever other – we have state uh, – various you know state owned property around here that's not a state park you know that's a forest or something else so those are going to vary quite a bit from state to state or even jurisdiction to jurisdiction you know uh, we have a couple campgrounds here that are owned by my county by Jefferson County here in Colorado that I love those campgrounds um, and and so th- th- those are on unincorporated Jefferson County property and so I would need to know specifically what Jefferson County uh, may have in the terms of regulations um, there might be a state preemption law. Maybe I only need to know for my state, but the point is it's not something here in the, in the context of our podcast that we can give extremely clear direction because it's going to vary at least from state to state, maybe even more locally than that. Mm-hmm. Yep. All, all good thoughts. The point is we want to familiarize ourselves with uh, not only federal, but also state and local laws and uh, also make sure we understand the distinction between private and public property. Uh, you know, I mean, again, I don't know. I don't, I know I've heard of examples and I can't remember any specific ones right now, but of certain like campgrounds, again, that are private campgrounds that have no gun policies in place. I don't know that KOA is included in that or not. Um, but I just know over the years as I, you know, I seem to recall coming across some, you know, various news stories or things here and there of, uh, somebody that's, arrested or something because they're, you know, packing a gun in a private campground. So just, you know, the point is we want. I'll jump right in there to tell you KOA does have a corporate national policy against all firearms on any of their properties. Mm. Yeah. Wow. 
Now I know, I, and here's the thing too, depending on the state you're in in particular as well, like that may have bearing or not as far as like legal sure. Uh, sure. Uh, problems. But, uh, you know, certainly they, if caught, if you will, they could say, see you later. It's their, it's their private property. Right. Um, so good, good to know where you are, what laws apply, what jurisdiction is, is in effect. Um, and, uh, yeah, just, I mean, do you guys all do you, some of you, I know be like the second amendment is my permit. I'm carrying regardless where I am. You do you. We're just simply here to provide the best information possible. Let's talk though, real quick, Jacob. Uh, this is a question actually it comes up fairly frequently and in, in, in a common way this is phrased is, uh, do I have castle doctrine in effect when I am inside my RV? And how does that affect, you know, when I'm traveling in my RV versus, say, camping in my RV? But really, the bigger question to ask is, uh, and it certainly could be where maybe something like an RV might be its own spe- special category because it could also maybe be a motor vehicle as well as a dwelling. But uh, we, we could, you know, we want to also talk about how uh you know, like a tent may be affected um, based on what type of law would apply. And by this, again, we're talking about, do we have castle doctrine as is often, you know, basically a duty to retreat inside uh, this, this space that we're using for sleeping or dwelling. Uh, Does that apply or do we need to be more concerned about how the law might apply outside of a dwelling, say stand your ground? So I'm going to try and be extremely concise here without getting us into too many weeds. Yep. First thing to understand is that in 37 states, it probably doesn't matter. It's an irrelevant question because if you're in a stand your ground state, then there's practically almost without exception, no self-defense legal difference between you being in your home and anywhere outside of your home. There are some exceptions because there are some other little state things that might uh, have very specific you know, exemptions or uh, legal presumptions of risk inside of a home. We have one here in Colorado. I won't get into that. But for the most part, the thing that varies in self-defense law when you're in a home or outside of a home is whether or not you have a legal duty to retreat. But in 37 states, it's irrelevant because those 37 states are stand your ground states and you don't have a duty to retreat anywhere. And the remaining 13 states where there is some sort of legal duty to retreat, all 13 of those states have castle doctrine laws that remove that otherwise legal binding duty to retreat when in your home. So if you're in one of the 13 states that has a legal duty to retreat, then it actually does matter. Uh, relative to are, are, am I in a place that qualifies as a home or qualifies as, you know, under a castle doctrine, thus removing the duty to retreat. So that's the setup. That's the, the, the intro, right? Now, within those 13 states, then what we would need to know is we would need to go look at that castle doctrine law and see how they break down or what they, how they define mm-hmm. the thing, the place at which this duty to retreat is otherwise removed. Uh, In most states, the most common words we see in those laws are the words premise, dwelling, and habitation. Mm -hmm. Those are your three like common go-to terms. And the most common for sure is dwelling. Though I do see premise, you know, with some frequency and on a rare occasion, I'll see habitation. Like Utah is one where they love the word habitation. So in the case of dwelling, premise, and habitation, uh, definitions are going to vary a little bit by by, by state. In some states, they may not even have a definition. So you're left to guess as to what that means. Uh, but there may or may not be some sort of court case precedent 
a legal bounding, binding thing that does give us some clarity as to what qualifies as a dwelling or a premise or a habitation based on your state's laws. Um, what I think is probably fair to say, and, and I'm disclaim it with, I could be wrong, or you might be in a state where it's an exception, but probably pretty universally, a tent is in a, in a campsite, an RV, a trailer, anything where you're, you that is designed, purpose designed for you to sleep in it, it probably is going to qualify as a dwelling premise or habitation in most states. Mm-hmm. So I think that if you're in one of those 13 states where the question is relevant, then probably your tent camper or RV or purpose built thing designed for you to sleep in qualifies as a premise dwelling or habitation. And thus, therefore, your castle doctrine qualifies there too. Mm-hmm. How is that? No, I think it's an excellent summation. Um, I do think it is relevant, and I again we don't we don't want to get way off into the weeds here. Uh, but you mentioned uh, Colorado, of course, being as an example. But I know there's numerous states that uh, where the standard, if you will, is a little bit different as far as uh, uh, the type of threat that may be present uh, for you to use justifiable deadly force. Uh, the distinction, for instance, like in Colorado, is outside of a dwelling. You 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 know it needs to be in a, a an immediate and imminent deadly threat to you or another person. Right. Um, But inside the dwelling, it's, it's really any physical threat. Not necessarily. There's a a legal presumption of risk of death. That would be like the easy. And so yeah, lots of States have laws that give you a legal presumption of risk of death. So if, if, if if I was Andrew Branca, you know, the way we would say this is we'd say of the five core elements of self-defense, one of those is proportionality. And if your state has some sort of, uh, castle doctrine or other dwelling premise habitation related law that effectively says when you're in your home and you have a threat, you have a legal presumption of risk of death of that threat. That essentially means we're removing the proportionality element. Mm-hmm. Uh, it means that I can now use a gun or any any form of force I want, regardless of the level of force that the threat has brought into the confrontation. Yep. And so, yeah, that then, you know, in within these 37 states where there is no legal duty to retreat like Colorado that is one other element that does matter whether or not, you know, I'm in a habitation dwelling or premise, whatever it might be here in Colorado. We usually use the word dwelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's yep. valid. Yep. And so a little, a little slide in here from law of I mean, guys, I mean, we've talked about it many times. We, we've had Andrew on the show. Um, you should familiarize yourself with the laws, particularly the laws of where you live or where you will be uh, camping, for instance, uh, so that you, so you understand some of those nuances and those nuances are important, right? It's a difference between dude forces, you know, dude, Riley doesn't use a lock on his tent zipper and dude unlocked or unzipped the tent and came in and I just shot him. And in one state, maybe that was not the best thing to do, but in like a state in Colorado, that might, you know, be acceptable, right? Because that, that nuance in the law that, uh, wow, dude is forcing his way into my tent, you know, and it's dark and he appears very threatening. Right. Um, again, don't read it. Probably very clear cut. That's probably pretty clear cut in most states. Like I would, I I would love for someone to give, you know, send us an email and tell us why they think that would not be clear cut in your state. Yeah. But yeah, I'll just make one simple plug too, for our mobile app, go download the concealed carry gun tools app. And in the maps, 
section, subsection laws, you can go to any state in the U.S. And among the legal summary we provide for every state, you can find out if you're if that state does have a duty to retreat. Uh, that would be, yep. you know, you, are you in one of the 13 or one of the 37? That's right there in our app. Yep. Yep. Very good. Let's talk real quick about firearm and ammo choice or selection. Um, this is uh, this is one that eh, kind of can get people riled up a little bit, you know, uh, depending on the on the particular discussion. Uh, but the the idea is that well, if we're really just concerned about human threats, nothing changes, right? Uh, from what I normally would carry, really. Whatever uh, normal opinion you bring to the topic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But obviously, when we're outdoors, people start thinking a little bit more about larger critters. And uh, so that's maybe where we might change our strategy a little bit. But I'll throw out one other thing to consider. And that is that when we're in a more urban environment, or even a suburban one, for that matter, uh, when, when, when we're in a place where there's other people, or at least a presumption that there or likelihood of other people being somewhere in my vicinity, uh, we are a little bit more concerned about things like overpenetration uh, and that sort of thing. Right. So by that, to that point that a lot of times our defensive ammo we carry is going to be some kind of expanding, typically a hollow point uh, bullet with the idea that it should expand and, have a limited amount of penetration so that it obviously does the work that it needs to, to affect, you know, stoppage on that threat, but limits the potential of overpenetration or continuing to be a threat, uh, that bullet particular, you know, to be a danger to other people. But when I'm in an outdoor environment, some of that might not be as much a concern, right? Uh, where, for instance, if I'm in a really thick forest, even if there's people within a quarter mile, Chances are an overpenetration or even a miss is not going to pose them any issue at all. Because, uh, I mean, you might be in one of the, I've, I, we've all been in those forests that you can't see more than 200 feet because or even less because trees are so thick. So likelihood of that bullet finding a tree eventually is, is you know, a, a non-issue. You may just be in the hills, right, or in the mountains, right, where you've got a lot of natural backstops. You see what I'm getting at? So, uh I might be inclined to choose something that uh, is more known for its penetration to have a greater effect on larger animals. And while may not be quite as effective on uh, a human target, like a lot of bolts are designed for probably would still be acceptable. Right. And so it's all about, we have, you know, we have to approach this from a, the, the mission sort of dictates the gear or the intended use dictates the equipment that I bring to the table. Uh, and so, you know, if I need to balance a little bit between human and animal threats, then I might take a bullet that doesn't maybe work quite as effectively on humans, but would be a little bit more effective on an animal. Mm-hmm. How do you approach it? Well, I, I, I think what you said is valid. I mean, I, I mostly defer to you on this topic. I think you're a little bit more expert and studied on this, but I guess, uh, the full metal jacket hollow point, I just say, d- did out of that. I think the continuation of this conversation is relative to caliber, you know, mm-hmm. and wow, when, you know, when I'm worried about big animals, I should have bigger calibers and more power and plus P and maybe even, you know, dipping into a caliber that, caliber that, that requisites probably having a revolver, you know, certain calibers are a lot more common in a revolver than they are in a semi-automatic. And so I think those are all potential 
common things we hear all the time. In fact, in getting ready for this episode, I was doing some Google searching and a large number of articles as I was reading about bringing a gun camping or backpacking, we're talking about how, you know, you've got to have plus P this and this, you know, beastly 44 Magnum, whatever, and all sorts of stuff. Cause that's what's required. Mm-hmm. And my mind was, was changed quite a bit on this topic recently, uh, fairly recently when uh, Dean, I, I would love to call him my friend. Uh, we are acquainted acquaintances at best, but, but Dean over at Amoland published an article that I thought was just amazing. Well-researched and well done. And most of his stuff is really good over there. But he wrote an article about, uh, he basically researched, I think 37 incidents in which a handgun was used against a bear. And the majority of them, it was a nine millimeter, but certainly not all. And he, he, he charted a 97% success rate of a handgun versus bear. And that doesn't always mean that like bear fell over, died. It means that like person was able to defend themselves successfully against a bear with using a handgun. And, and I think it really, you know, I think for so long, we've all just assumed, presumed because it sounds smart that, you know, you need bigger caliber stuff for big animals with thick fur. That sounds intelligent. Um, but, you know, I think if you hit a bear with a, a Honda Civic or a Honda Accord, like both are going to be pretty efficient. And, and so, you know, I, I think we got to be a little bit less dogmatic about the whole you need more caliber thing. But uh, I certainly don't think that stronger ammo will hurt. I think that, you know, if you want to carry 44 Magnum plus P whatever in your, you know, killer or Bush, Bush killer 5000 revolver, I don't think that's a bad idea. I'm suggesting that. Uh, Riley's laughing. Was it the Bush Killer Five Thousand? Is that what did it for you? Well, in the forty-four Magnum Plus P, because it, really <laughs> it, it already yeah. is Plus P. Yeah, it's really not a thing. But <laughs> but but the the point I'm trying to make is simply that I'm not I'm not trying to play down the idea or the potential merit of having a higher caliber, stronger bullet uh, in the that environment. I'm suggesting that it may not be as critical as as we generally have been led to believe. Uh, I agree that now, by the way, uh, Dean has published follow-ups, uh, to his original, uh, article on, uh, bear. There, there goes the flinch for the mute button on Jacob's in there. Uh, yeah, I got my own bear here barking away. <laughs> Maybe we said the word bear and, and the dog, you know, started freaking out. Right. Um, but uh, he, he's he's updated that article or has published follow-up articles. We're actually now up to 93 cases. And what these are. Okay, well, whatever Riley was going to say, he's gone. Uh, we just lost Riley. So if this makes it into the final edit, you can all make fun of Riley. But, uh, oh, okay, he's back. Whoopsie. So maybe we'll edit this out. And, and we're now reversed, apparently. Yeah, well, now I'm on. Okay, well. <laughs> Continue as if it never happened. Dean published updates. Yeah, so I, I had a little slip of the, the hand on the mouse and accidentally closed my tab here. My apologies, folks. Um, so uh, we're up to 93 cases now. Then uh, these are examples. These are all examples of handguns or pistols used against bears in defense. And, you know, so that obviously includes everything. And just to give a highlight of everything, uh, folks, that... Uh, we're talking everything. We're talking 357 Magnum, 44 Magnum, 10 millimeter. It, it's all these different. Uh, it, it's any handgun or pistol. Uh, 44 Magnums, I think, are the most common. Uh, 357 Magnums, also fairly common. 10 millimeters, fairly common. But there's a number of cases involving much smaller calibers, ones that people typically would not think of 
using against a bear. Uh, and we obviously use bears as the example because it is the largest threatening animal on North American on the North American continent, right? Um, and so there are, let's see here, I can just give you a quick rundown. Uh, six cases of 22 rimfire pistols used against bears. Five out of six successful. Kind of bizarre. That's pretty bold. Yeah, that's pretty bold. Bizarre. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting this says we're good just carrying that Ruger uh, uh, Mark III, you know, or Mark IV out. SR-22, uh, yeah. You know, one case involving a 380 that was successful. Seven cases, nine millimeters were used, all successful. Uh, yeah. One case involving a, a nine by 18, nine millimeter, you know, Russian Makarov caliber, successful. Uh, <laughs> it's worth reading this. We, we'll include the link, Riley, yeah. in the show notes. Yeah. I, I'm just given the, the context that this is what started kind of changing my opinion a little bit because I, I used to be sort of in that camp of, well, I got to have a 44 Magnum or at least a 10 millimeter or nothing, you know, and, and the fact is it probably, uh, these articles don't necessarily, or these examples don't need, don't even necessarily go so far into, uh, what type of bullet was being used. But here's what I could tell you is important on a thick skinned, heavier, larger animal, just like it is on humans. Although we have a little bit more tissue to, to penetrate through penetration is king. We need to reach the vitals. And so I know some people will say, well, I'm going to carry a full metal jacket. Cool. All right. And again, we might not want to do that in an urban or suburban environment, in a city environment. But I think on the outdoors, yeah, that might be acceptable. Um, maybe even I'm not a, I'm not on the, you know, boat yet with these external hollow point is one term that's used, these fluted bullet designs as far as like whether they're better or not or have advantages or not over more traditional hollow point designs on human targets. But I could see where say like the Lehigh defense, extreme penetrator might not be a bad choice for bear defense and also be acceptable for human defense in an outdoor environment. So point is uh, looking at your bullet choice, your bullet options. Again, I think hard cast lead bullets just historically, they just, they do great, right? When you have enough of a, punch behind them uh they're going to penetrate they're also going to deform slightly and 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 do the damage they need to do but the point is we have to penetrate reach the vitals all right Mm -hmm. and and, uh i don't feel as there's still times i may carry a larger gun when i go into the woods but there's plenty of times i might not and i have carried uh say my typical nine millimeter and i'm not sitting there going "Eh, if a bear attacks me now i'm undergunned no, what I know is I got 15 plus one rounds in my P320X compact that I got a lot of options. I got a lot of rounds I can go through that hope, you know, hopefully gets the job done. And as these stories that Dean has covered, I think is a likely, I think it's a likely possibility or a probability, excuse me, that's the more better, the better term to get the job done. All right. Um, so I would say uh, carry what you're most comfortable with make a good choice of ammo selection, uh, something that's known for penetration and, uh, don't overthink it too much. That's what I would summarize that all with. Good to go for me. Medical. And I know we're, we're a bit over time. So we'll cruise to these last couple of points, but, uh, now I'm not just talking about gunshots or knife stabs, uh, or even necessarily getting tore up by an animal, but we're out camping, hiking, exploring the outdoors and we fall, we break bones. We, 
get jabbed by a stick. We, Mm -hmm. whatever, right? So medical, important. Yeah, so to keep it very kind of purpose-driven topic, I think that we need to understand that an emergency medical response primary objective is to keep the person alive until they get to professional medical stuff, right? To a right. hospital. That that's that's my number one core thing that I'm attempting to do is keep someone alive. Well, in an urban in, environment, that probably means 12 minutes, you know, 15 minutes tops. It's really not, you know, the, the amount of work I have to do to sustain life for 15 minutes is generally not drastic with with a minimal amount of you know good training and good gear. But when we're in a, you know, the woods, it's a whole different ball game. You know, that hospital could be, you know, 30 minutes in, 30 minutes out. You, it could be an hour that I have to sustain that life. Uh, it could be more than that. You know, I might have to move the body to a place where I can get communication to be able to uh, call for medical response. So I think that uh, without getting into a lot of details, the point is when when we're in that environment, we need to be significantly more prepared. Uh, we already talked about communication, some of those things, but it might change what goes into my trauma kit. For example, uh, I might want a, uh, I just blanked out on the word. <laughs> it's like a stretcher, but it's portable. I uh, like a litter. A litter. Thank you. I, yeah. you know, a litter would be something that I may not carry in my EDC trauma kit. But if I'm going in the in the in the backcountry and I'm going camping, a litter is probably a good idea. Um, well, I might and, and or be prepared or know how to improvise, right? Like sure, you, you sure. could use tarp sure, or tent clothing, material to sure. fashion something, right? Yep, yeah. yep, yep. So I think those are all really important things. Um, we have our, our director of medical over Mount Man Medical, Brian. He's actually about to spend five days uh, in the woods taking a wilderness medical survival class down in Colorado Springs uh, near Pikes Peak, and so we we got to recognize that emergency trauma response is different in, in an environment where different things happen. So you still need all the things like that we're used to. We still need tourniquets. We still need chest seals. We still need uh, gauze. We still need pressure bandages. We still would like to have a hemostatic dressing. We still should have gloves. We still should have shears. Uh, all those things like still apply, but you probably need to take it up a notch relative to your preparedness, especially if space allows for it. If, if it's a drive-in operation, um, then I'm going to do that. If I'm backpacking or hiking, then I can have a bigger, more prepared med kit, at least in the vehicle. And now I just got to get my casualty back to the vehicle uh, to have access to some of those things, or I got to send somebody to go retrieve those things if that's what it was. But I think that the key is recognize that this is an environment where we got to step it up a gear. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, so we don't need to go, you know, we've obviously had other episodes covering medical and trauma related topics. Uh, Brian's been on podcast, you know, I think twice or maybe even three times now. I don't recall exactly. Uh, have the gear, carry it with you, know how to use it. And mountainmanmedical.com is the place to go get a lot of that stuff. Communications, we touched on a little bit earlier. Um, one thing I would, uh, add, I guess, a little bit more in context or detail on this is uh, both you and I are ham radio operators, Jacob, and have radios for that purpose. Uh, It is, I think, I'm not saying everybody's got to go get a ham radio license, but it's not a bad idea to at least have. Again, it's another option. It's another tool, and it's not hard to do. Uh, There's websites you can go to and get a, you know, quick little overview of what's involved with ham radios and the test and and you could take practice tests. And I'm not saying to be irresponsible and like, just 
game the whole test. Yeah. It's a good I idea did. to know how stuff works. I, I, I definitely gamed the system. Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm that guy. You know, I spent seven days memorizing some flashcards and I went in and got my license. Um, the, but, but, but the point is that, you know, getting a license and then becoming actually proficient with the use of um, the radio is a good idea. So, I mean, have it have as an option, right? And know how to use it. Uh, no, be familiar with repeaters in your area. Like in Colorado, for instance, Colorado is actually really fortunate in this regard. There's a whole, and, and there's probably other states and other places that do this, but there's a whole connection of repeaters in Colorado that has all these repeaters tied together. And I know some of you are like, repeater what? Um, the point is, is that you can use your radio to reach one of these repeater towers. And then that repeater tower, because of its location, has a lot greater range than your little handheld. And so you can reach other people in your area. But in the case where you have connected repeaters, like we do here in Colorado, Colorado connection repeaters is what they're literally called. Uh, you can actually, I can be in, uh, I don't know, like Gunnison, for instance, I could be in Gunnison, Colorado and reach. I think there, I'm pretty sure there's a, a, a repeater in that area. And I could talk to somebody in Denver on a handheld walkie talkie radio because I'm using the repeater system to do that. Uh, that's something I've communicated with my wife about. She's also a ham radio operator where you know, we have the ability. And I, you know, when I've been in some parts of the state that are more remote and I know I'm not going to have cell service, I say, Hey, look, uh, if for some reason you don't hear from me by the time you're expecting to, you're going to want to turn on the radio we have here, make sure it's on this frequency or on this channel. I have it programmed with channels that are tied with the specific uh, repeater frequencies. Just go here and just start listening. Okay. If there's something that's gone, uh, you know, badly, but, and I'm trying to reach you, that's one place I might reach you. If you don't hear me there, yeah, we might have a problem, right? So having those communication options, uh, really, really, really good idea. Uh, so anyway. I'll, I'll add just one thought along that lines, and that is that you don't need to have any license to operate a ham radio in an emergency. That's true. So law yes. does allow that if you're in a, a true life-threatening emergency without a license, you can still use those frequencies. So truth of the matter is you, anybody can use any frequency that they have to in an emergency. Right. That's right. So um, in the show notes, we should include a link to a, like an Amazon you know, page, but you know, there's, there are very, very low cost, you know, handheld ham radios you can go buy that will also get you the, uh, the uh, national weather emergency radio service uh, mm-hmm. frequencies. Uh, so you could listen in on those, keep track of what's going on and be able to broadcast an emergency without a license or of course, just as recommended, go get a license. Yep. 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 All very good. So, uh, and, and there's other communication strategies and things we could, we could probably talk about. Um, but, uh, you know, that's a good place. I mean, be familiar with cell coverage, maybe consider radio options. Uh, yeah. And then another thing would you know, fall back is I might have just a little cage on the top of my backpack with a homing pigeon in it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Jacob's like, yeah, totally legit, man. Good idea. Yeah. Right <laughs> write that little note tight on We're the like <laughs> now selling homing pigeons <laughs> okay uh final thing uh this is one that uh is gonna be a little more personal for people uh but just you know some some considerations where and how to carry your gun uh, this is this is challenging, particularly like on a backpacking trip. Less of an issue if you're obviously camping in a developed campground or you're car camping or whatever. But uh, uh, you know, I, I think worst case scenario, I'm I'm packing my gear. So where am I packing my gun? 
Well, I could tell you based on Todd Orr's experience in Montana, this is the dude that was attacked by a massive grizzly, actually twice. It came back and it mauled him again. And he had a gun, but he couldn't, he, he had it in his, in his bag. He could not get it, get to it fast enough. Uh, and, and I know that one of his lessons learned was like, yeah, I got to have it where I can access it. Right. So, um, I, I try to still just carry in my, my usual location. Now, for me, that means appendix. The challenge there is, is that a lot of times with a backpacking pack, you have that belt, right? Now, I've experimented with it and made some slight adjustments to my holster and my gun. And I've, I've been able to get to where I can make that work and it doesn't cause me any discomfort. But it took some 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 tweaking, and I'm not talking about anything huge or major, but just kind of getting familiar with. And, and some of it had to do with adjusting the ride height of my pack. Okay, actually wearing my belt a little bit lower than maybe what I used to, and so making some of those adjustments. It's kind of like how I place my seatbelt in my vehicle. I try to place the the belt of my pack um, down below the gun and a little bit below my 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 normal belt location on my waist. Uh, but again, you're going to have to experiment and play with that yourself. Now, what I could tell you from experience has not worked for me is back when I was carrying more in like a IWB 3, 4, 430 o'clock position. Uh, that did not work well at all for, for carrying a pack. I was quite uncomfortable. Plus, it was very inaccessible. I had to remove a belt, had to move pack, you know, to get to my gun. So I've, I have found the appendix positions continue to work very well for me. I'm not saying that's going to be the case for everybody, but uh, uh, just give me, I'm just giving you a little bit of a look into the mind of, of Riley um, as, as it relates to how I've done backpacking and still managed to carry my gun in my normal holster, normal, normal location. Yep. The, I think the two takeaways here, and I, I don't want to add, I'll just kind of summarize would be make sure you can actually still get the gun quickly. So if you, if your plan is put it in a big pack or backpack or something, um, that's where I might throw my survival rifle, um, but my gun that I want to access for a quick defensive situation should be readily drawable and you know, deployable. And then the second major takeaway is you may need to change the way you you carry. And, and definitely if you carry three or four, or I should say four or five o'clock or six o'clock on the back, uh, and now you're going to have a backpack on, you're toast. Like it's never going to work out well. So you definitely need to make some adjustments if that's you. Um, since going to appendix, I also don't really do, do anything different. I just continue to carry appendix. But when I carried at four or five o'clock, uh, a traditional IWB, it was not uncommon for me when I was hiking or in the back country to use a three o'clock OWB holster, mm -hmm. just right on the hip. Uh, mm -hmm. not, you know, not, not necessarily a duty rig, you know, with a super high level of retention, but just kind of a traditional OWB, uh, holster, like the, uh, the Q series, um, is it Stealth. the covert? Covert. Stealth? I think it's the covert. It's covert. Yep. Yeah, the covert holster from Q series is a one I really like for OWB in that kind of scenario. It still keeps the gun really tight in on the body. It's got pretty pretty good passive it's got, retention. It's got great retention, actually. Yeah. So I'm a I'm a fan of that one for that kind of environment. But yeah, those 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 are just considerations you need to think about, and not get caught off guard. Yeah. And then of course uh, some people are it's become really popular to go with like the chest rig arrangement. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. hey, that's that's certainly an option. Uh you know, again, we got we got to make sure we're clear on what our laws are, right? Am I in an open carry state, for instance? Uh, what type of you know who am I going to be meeting on the trail or out there in in the woods? Um, is that going to be you know? Because some of you I know are going to say I don't care, right? But all of this has to be factored in. 
Okay. And certainly I don't like it drawing attention to myself. And if for some reason you get some, you know, tree hugging, <laughs> okay. I love trees too. Uh, but you get somebody out there that is not a fan of guns and you know, they, there's, there's, there's been stories of people making up reports. This man I met on the trip on the trail threatened me and he's armed. Well, like he how shooting does, at the trees and the yeah. animals, wildlife, and so how does how does a ranger respond to that? Uh, number one, they have to like take that seriously, so they have to respond. And then how do they handle that? Because you know they're what they've been told is this made up story, sure, but they're gonna treat you differently because of 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 all that. So point is, I like still maintaining a low profile even when I'm out outdoors in the woods. Um, or at least I take into consideration where I am. Like in Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, couldn't care less. I, I open carry all day long in the woods. Nobody, nobody cares. But in Colorado, we we you know sometimes people are totally chill, and sometimes you run into some of those people who don't like guns at all. Ditto. So, yeah. Cool. Uh, oh, one last thing. You know, I, I assume that what you were going to mention is that. The only real cool foresty parts of Idaho are the parts that you effectively stole from Wyoming. So if are, that's what you're saying, are, sure yeah. from it. One of my favorite backpacking trips was in the heart of Idaho in the Sawtooth Range. Mm. Okay, saw, Sawtooth that, Range is nice. That is there's some, some other stuff up on the Seattle remote. or the Washington, Oregon side. That is but, remote country, bro. I, I did a okay. I did a sixty miler through the sawtooths and didn't see anybody else for a week. It was crazy. Anyway, 60 milers, that's pretty, pretty legit. Yeah. Yeah. It was, good it, work. Was, it was a good trip. Uh, one last thing would be a fanny pack would be another option. All right. And those are kind of coming back a little bit, but also on the trail, that's not, you know, like in an urban environment, fanny pack stands out a little bit more, but hiking, camping, whatever doesn't really stand out. Thought that that just occurred to me, and that could be an option as well. Yep, good thought. Well, uh, that's we've covered a lot here today in today's episode. So we got we got to wrap it up. We're over an hour, uh, but again, a reminder: today's uh, sponsors: MountainMedical.com and AmmoSupplyWarehouse.com. Uh, we appreciate all of you for for being a part of this with us and and following along and th- through 430 episodes, and hope that you'll continue to do so, and we'll continue to try to bring the best information and content that we can. Jacob, any final words? Nope. Go enjoy nature. I guess one final thing would be, we'd be remiss if we didn't wish everybody a happy independence day. Ah, touche. Two days from now. Yeah. Happy independence (laughs) day. Happy birthday, America. Love it. Yep. Yep. Maybe we'll have to touch on that a little bit more on Tuesday. All right, guys, until next time, you take care and a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.